Hello, hey everybody. Uh, welcome to our new episode of those amazing interviews with amazing people. I'm Anna. I'm co-founder and CEO at Meander, a global mentorship platform which allows people around the world to grow in their careers through mentorship. In those series, I talk to inspiring experts, thought leaders about the future of work, about the skills you could develop to future-proof your career, and also about trends that you could monitor and opportunities you could explore. I am super excited to welcome today uh, John Labador, who is the head of strategy at Google. And uh, John actually has over 17 years uh, working in financial services and technology industries. He is the head of strategy and operations for Google Pay, and previously he led strategic partnerships at HSBC. Welcome, John. Super excited to have you. It's nice to see you, Anna, and it's nice to talk with everybody. Awesome. So before we get started with the interview, just a bit of housekeeping. Uh, we'll have this interview for about 40 minutes, and then at the end, we'll open the floor to your questions. Uh, John and I are super excited to see what you have to ask. So please do not hesitate to ask your questions in comments uh, under this live stream. So we'll be looking at them, and we'll be picking them at the end of the interview. And also, uh, I would like you to share your profession. It's uh, super interesting to see uh, who we have in the audience. Uh, so John here uh, is coming from the strategic background and finance background, uh, but I know that we would have a lot of product managers, designers, founders. So I'm super curious to see who you are. So please share in comments uh, your current job title. All right, and now back to, to our interview. So John, maybe you could share a quick introduction so that our viewers could you know, better understand your career path. Absolutely. So currently, um, I am the head of strategy for Google Pay and Google Wallet across uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Um, but you know, it's been a long journey to get here. So um, I've been um, in the work, workforce for about 17 years. Uh, that stretches across about four different industries. Um, when I graduated undergrad with my engineering degrees, I worked in R&D uh, for the US government, working on various different hardware and software applications. Um, and then I transitioned um, into consulting, where you know learned a number of different kind of really important business skills. And that um, obviously started to transition me into financial services, where I've basically spent the last 10 years or so, um, starting at HSBC, focused on um, innovation and strategic partnerships. Um, and then uh, in the last several years, uh, I've been at Google in the same role. Amazing. Such an impressive journey. And I think a true example of nonlinear careers that we talk a lot about at Mehander. Uh, Absolutely. Awesome. So before we dive into your career journey, uh, let's actually define what strategy is. Because I feel like it's such a such a buzzword right now. Like a lot of people are trying to use it. Uh, some product managers and designers are trying to be more strategic. Uh, so I'd like to hear your view on how you define strategy. Yeah. So uh, the simple answer, and it's obviously a very squishy topic, but um, it's taking very subjective conversations about kind of what we should do as an organization or as a product. I'm turning it to a very objective conversation. And what I mean by that is um, being able to use logic, data, facts, assumptions to basically tease out, you know, what's the what's the thing that we should do and then um, how we should do it. Um, but more than anything, we need to have the why, why we should mm -hmm. do it. So being able to describe using objective-based criteria why we think that what we're doing is very important. I think it sounds very simple from what you're describing. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is the kind of the biggest challenge when you're creating a strategy? Like what's the most difficult when you work on that? So for large enterprises and actually very small enterprises, uh, I, and again, I go back to this concept of, of subjectivity. A lot of people are going to have um, opinions about what we should be doing, especially kind of in the innovation space, 
There's a lot of it, you know, if we talk about fintech specifically, there's a lot of information uh, that's coming through, whether that's through conferences, whether that's through various um, industry bodies, a lot of startups. Um, and so there's, there's all these emerging trends. So the question is, you know, what's the best thing that we could um, invest in? You know, and so if you mm. sit around within a large company and you have that discussion where you're a founder and you're like, where's the, you know, where's the big opportunity that I can focus? Everyone's going to have an opinion. Um, and so where strategy really should play a role is taking that discussion, basically starting from a foundation of assumptions and um, very subjective for the organization and working through a process, leveraging, you know, inputs, whether that be market-based inputs or internal product inputs in, in building basically a view of what's the big opportunity or what's the thing that we need to do with a specific product. And then, as I said, once you start to, you know, tease that out, then it's have a discussion about um, the how. So let's say that that vision is five years out or three years out. What are the steps that we need to take now to basically build towards that? And, and, and really, um, at the end of that, you should be able to very clearly articulate um, the why. So I want to, you know, focus on credit cards in this market because the user opportunity is this big that's not currently being met by any current providers. Um, and we think over a 20 year growth trend, there's going to be an additional X percentage, you know, that type of logic, mm -hmm. while it sounds simple, does take time, obviously, to research, analyze. And so through that, um, you basically move from the, you know, the opinion based discussion into something that's fairly subject, uh, objective, excuse me. Mm. Super interesting. Is there any scientific way to define the why or is it more like an art? I would say it's it's a mixture of art and science. Um, so in a, in a past life in banking, I went and um, spent my COVID years getting uh, a CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst uh, certi Certificate. And so some of the things that I learned through that um, in terms of investing and, and, and you know, the asset management aspect, the question of, you know, where do you invest your money? Why? There's obviously a lot of speculative assets that you can you can do or processes, crypto or others. But then there's there's a more scientific approach where you sit down and you and you think about who you are as an investor, your goals, then you go through a process. And that and that turns that kind of very um, you know, squishy kind of Hey, I think I want to invest in this today into a more rigorous science behind it. But there's, there, you know, it's, um, investing or in strategy, it's you have to predict the future, and you know, there's there's no way <laughs> to predict the future. So all you're really doing, um, I think that this is a key part of strategy, is you're really just creating hypotheses. You, mm. you know, if you take a scientific approach to this, all you really end up with when you write this down on paper is a set of hypotheses that throughout time is either going to be validated by the data or it's not. Nice. I hope uh, it now became clearer to, to people watching uh, how we could define strategy. And I actually would like to now go back to your career path because I think you started, I think you started, uh, studied engineering uh, at yes. the uni and then was an intern at NASA. So worked with R&D for some time. So how did you become interested in strategy? Well, I would say there are a number of parallels between doing you know, pure play R&D and, and strategy. Um, you know, one of them is obviously kind of the process and, and basically starting with kind of a blank sheet of paper and then through kind of a somewhat standard but flexible process, being able to say, I want to build this thing. Um, and then obviously that's kind of the future and then working back to today of like, what do we need to do to be able to test and, and validate the, you know, the set of hypotheses or, or whatever you want to build. Um, and so there's, there is, a, there is a lot of commonality, at least in the kind of conceptual process. Mm -hmm. Um, 
<clears throat> as a, I think the other big um, kind of parallel between R&D and strategy is the concept of kind of seeing the macro picture. Mm. Um, a lot of times in, in R&D, uh, you have to not just focus on, you know, the, the, the widget or the box that you need to build, but you need to have a higher picture of where is it going to fit in to an environment or with users or, or whatever. And, and then being able to hone down in into, you know, we need, we need to build this specific box. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of ability to go from the very macro to the micro um, is quite common, I think, between uh, the two types of careers. Hmm. Interesting. But then how did you decide to essentially make strategy your core job? Like, why have you decided to move away from engineering and focus more on first consulting and then yep. strategy and operations? What was I would, appealing? I would, <laughs> I, I, would, I would say, I, I, you know, if you're someone who loves to sit down and kind of have the debate about the, the big macro topics, um, you know, whether it be in the world today or um, in, you know, your, your company, understanding why certain companies uh, do things, you know, like why do they make a decision to build this product in this market? If you like that type of, you know, debate and being able to kind of challenge and, and be able to kind of work through that, you probably um, have, uh, you know, you're probably a right fit for strategy that these are mm -hmm. the types of things that I love to do. I love to sit down with colleagues and work through various um, questions, you know, should we do this or should we do that? And then and then go through the logical argument of why or why not. Um, that's, I think, a core skill set for being in strategy. Um, mm -hmm. And that's something that I, I love to do. Um, it's just kind of part of my personality. And so I, I think if that's the type of person you are, um, you, you probably could be a good fit for strategy. Amazing. Uh, I'd like to delve into specifics. So how one could develop a strategic skill. So I saw that you took um, uh, some, essentially you educated uh, yourself. So yeah. you went into MBA. Uh, I think you started finance. Was that uh, essentially a contribution uh, towards developing your strategic skill? Or were there some other ways that helped you? Yeah, so I would say there's, there's a bit of self-study. Um, you know, when you go into consulting, they give you kind of a standardized set of tools, toolkits to, to build strategy or to do transformation projects. So that's really helpful. Um, those are just toolkits that you can leverage when you're trying to problem solve in general. Um, and so there's a bit of a career aspect. Um, there's um, also a lot of books, you know, and there's, you know, you know, as many books as you can think of. Can you recommend um, any? There's a lot of business frameworks that I think if you know the principles of are really helpful. So a good, question, good example that I always kind of leverage um, is either the, the 4P or the 3Cs um, or Porter's Five Forces. We use that a lot. Um, and, you know, and kind of understanding a lot of the, you know, the uh, business school frameworks is helpful. I wouldn't say that I would uh, we don't explicitly leverage them every day. Like we don't say we're going to use Porter's Five Forces for our analysis today. But what we will do is we'll do a sense check. Hey, have we thought about these various aspects um, mm. in what we're trying to do? Um, and so it's more, you know, at, at this level, more you know, implied or baked into the analysis. It's not a cornerstone of of what we what we do. So. You know, maybe the recommendation here is if you're not familiar um, with these business school frameworks, um, there's a number of kind of fairly straightforward um, books online that you can buy. Um, Harvard Business Review has a lot of those that you can kind of pick up and they're pretty quick reads. Um, or if you want some of the, the bigger ones and I've, re I've read a number of the longer kind of strategy uh, framework books, um, the one I, one I think is most common is, is Porter's Five Forces. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Uh, is it the framework that you use to create a strategy? Like essentially, I'm trying to, to get into the components 
which you usually cover uh, when creating a strategy. Uh, so do you usually yeah. break it down by the five forces or is there something else that you typically cover? Uh, so, okay. So I individually, the way I describe it is I use a bit of a hybrid approach. Um, mm. I have kind of my own, you know, special blend or the way I think about strategy. So, um, what many people call the kind of the top-down strategy approach or what I call the V. So if you basically think about it from a start very high level, go down to an inflection point and then come back out. Um, that's the approach that I really leverage um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about that, that V process. So if we start kind of on the upper side, it's um, building a macro view of, of two components. The first component, um is around um the company so if you're corporate strategy uh director or let's say you're below that you're just a product strategy um individual um you have to kind of understand what the company mission is mm -hmm. what do you want to be you know what's the focus of your product what's the focus of the you know the uh, customers and users you want to focus on and and then you want to marry that up to the external user customer base. So you start with these two big, very simple concepts. And really what you want to get to is being able to describe, I'm going to do this with these individuals, you know, and it could be in this geography to solve this pain point and being able to start to string that together. That's the highest level that you can do. This is mm -hmm. very common for founders to do. Um, this typically comes through in the pitch pack, um, you know, the 10, 12 slides, you, you know, every founder has, you know, on their, <laughs> on their hard drive, I'm sure. Yeah. And have it, right. And it, and it, and it just describes basically, you know, a bit of what you're going to do and, and why, and why should someone should listen to it or invest in your company. Mm -hmm. That's the highest level that should then flow down into, uh, basically product strategy. So if you start to focus on very specific product that you want to build, it all has to line back up to what you've already built. It should all line mm -hmm. back up into the company mission. It should line back into kind of the broader um, set of products or, or whatever you're trying to solve for as a company. And, and so basically through that extension, now you start to move into for this set of users, how can I solve with this specific product? And so the detail becomes more specific to user behaviors and trends over a specific time period. And so what you're really trying to do at that point is, is kind of start to think about the design of how you would solve for a product. Hmm. After that, getting towards the inflection point in our V is really where you start to do the doing because hmm. strategy is not useful unless you have something that comes out of it. And so that's where the actual product design and piloting happens. You know, the inflection point is pilot. We mm -hmm. launch something. We're, we're testing. We're testing for product feasibility. Is it actually feasible? And you're testing a little bit of user uplift. I predicted that if I had a sample size of a thousand people piloting my project, what, what was my return on conversion funnel? Did I mm -hmm. get what I thought was going to happen? And so kind of through that test, you start to get feedback on, was my strategy correct? Was my design correct? And if it is, then you start to come back up the V. And so by coming back up the V, then you start to scale. You're starting to scale in a broader audience, right? Within the existing market, you start to open it up. You're now moving out of, out of pilot or, or out of alpha or beta into kind of wider mass. And then the last part of the, the V is where you start to look at wider scale. It, you know, can you hmm. widen who you think your user base is? Should you be adding additional products and features on the side? Should you be thinking about new geographies? And so the reason I use this more complex process versus the kind of standard frameworks is because ultimately the I, you know, the goal of strategies to be part of the design and delivery of something. And I think in some cases, strategy becomes this self-licking ice cream cone. And what <laughs> I mean by that is it, it gets written down. Everyone says, this is exactly what we're going to do. It gets stored away. And it's, <laughs> and it's basically, it's not reopened 
until two years later when people are like, well, that didn't work. We need to write a new strategy. Mm-hmm. It, should, it should all be tightly woven into the, the actual delivery of your products. Awesome. I think that's, a, that's an amazing framework. Uh, and I think it also connects the execution bits to the strategy, which is incredibly important. So I guess at some point it helps you understand if your strategy was not correct, right? So Absolutely. And so, you know, again, if we go back to this concept of strategy is really just a set of hypotheses about, you know, what we what we want to build or test with the users as you're going down the V and into design. So as part of design, you typically have all your UX research. You might have some actual users, you know, surveys or studies. And then obviously when you're piloting, you're getting direct feedback from a data, you know, product performance perspective. That should all be feeding back into, you know, did we have the right strategy? Did we, you know, did we target the right features in the right way? Um, and so if, if it, if it's not coming back the way you want, so let's say out of a thousand people, you were expecting 30 people to go through the full, full conversion funnel to be actively using it, to become monthly active users, let's say, and that's not where you're at, you should go back and say, what did we miss? And do mm. we need to pivot on our strategy? That's really the point where the, the connection point between the strategy and the product performance is, is extremely important. And that's where you may actually have to pivot. Mm-hmm. How do you actually understand if it's a strategy which is failing or the execution uh, which is failing? The, what's interesting is I, it's hard to frame it as the strategy or the, the execution. Mm. Um, the, ultimately, you know, when you when you build a strategy, is it is you know you have these hypotheses and these assumptions, um, which you. Uh, I guess maybe there is there's 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 a little bit of how you would tease some of that out, but I, I wouldn't explicitly say this is this part has failed or this part has failed, because mm-hmm. a lot of this should be woven together, and it shouldn't be hey I've built a strategy now it's you delivery team to go and execute. What may come back is once you into pilot or early adoption phase, you find that the assumptions that you've written as part of your core strategy have changed or Mm. the assumptions are wrong. Um, If that's the case, then that may, there may be a lot of reasons for that. Maybe the market has shifted, maybe user behaviors, you know, great example is you launch a product right before COVID that, you know, requires you to go to a store and then the market's completely shifted. You know, Mm -hmm. is it your fault? No, it's not the strategy. It's not the, it's not the execution. and so, you know, as long as everything is, is working together, the, the goal isn't really to say it was an execution problem or a or product problem. It's more always, you know, hey, we've, we've landed here. We've gotten feedback that says now really the objective is now up here. How do we then start to pivot? Um, and in, in many of our, you know, many of the conversations we have in my organization, it's less, you know, we do have kind of the, you know, what was the reason that we, we failed, mm-hmm. but um, more of the conversation is where do we go from here? And I, and I think that obviously is kind of a core lesson for any, any f- founder, because mm-hmm. ultimately you have to keep moving to be able to, you know, find the right product market fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like uh, what you described uh, kind of comprises of two things. Uh, like the first one is being able to track all the trends, like what's happening on the market, what kind of updates are uh, happening with technology and so on. And then the second part is actually being recognized this as opportunity or as a threat. How, yeah. how do you do that? Like how do you stay up to date with trends? And also how do you, how do you understand that it's something that needs to be reacted to? Yeah, so um, there's a obviously there's a there's a number of sources, um, and I can I'll try to try to describe a bit of the process. Um, but the simple answer is you should always be leveraging whatever product data you have. Um, you know, if you've designed the product in you know um, fairly standard way, I think now you will see a lot of the 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 user performance data come through. You know, that'll tell you a lot about at least 
once a user kind of hits your door, how and where the, the performance um, is either working or breaking down. That's a, that's a huge indicator. Obviously, it leaves out a lot of what's happening in the market. So you, you do, you know, we'll talk about this in a second, do you need to go to external sources. Mm. So um, at least in the fintech world, um, probably one of the most important um, sources is partners. Mm. Um, in fintech, just about everything is interwoven together. And, and so, you know, when we think about new product or market opportunities, you know, one of the first places we go is to some of our key strategic partners. Hey, we're thinking about this. What do you think about this? And, and, and through that, what you get is not just kind of, you know, when you look at kind of, and I'll talk about kind of data providers, data providers have a tendency to be um, uh, lagging indicators, whereas partners really have a pulse um, mm. of typically of, hey, we're, you know, we're thinking about doing this and you check with the partner like, yeah, actually, you know, we've been thinking about something similar. And that helps to gauge whether or not, you know, the, the, the market, not just the user, but the partners um, would be interested in something. Mm -hmm. The third is kind of your core data uh, providers. Um, and, you know, you can imagine it at Google, there's any number of different data providers, the typical ones from a quantitative perspective we rely on or, you know, Statistica or your monitor. Um, this, I, I don't, I'm not getting paid for this, by the way, um, <laughs> acquirers, a lot of, a lot of industry bodies will provide kind of their statistics. As I said, though, those are lagging indicators. Um, they're going to tell you typically about what's happened. They may give you a projection. Um, and, and so your goal through this process is really not to say this source is better than this source because they may be using different methods of data collection and things like that. What it's, what it's more about is, is aggregating that back up. So the, the, the kind of mental picture that I use is think of a kind of a raging river that has a lot of kind of multiple rapids happening and there's, you know, different undercurrents and water's going in a lot of different ways. And so you, you go, Hey, I want to get safely down the river. How do I do that? Mm -hmm. What you're looking for in this in these data trends is, is really what are the headwinds and tailwinds? What are the things that are going to help me be successful? What are the things that are going to put pressure on me to um, basically restrict my my growth? Um, mm -hmm. And and so through that kind of check of you know do I think if I you know if I launch this product or the, the product I have has not returned the performance that I expected. Is that because something in the market has changed? And so there's, there's now pressure, um, you know, and, and, in my role, we see, uh, I oversee a number of different markets, 30 plus live markets. Mm -hmm. You see different trends happening across different markets. A, 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 you know, it could, um, a headwind could have come from a, a regulator who has said, you know, be careful about how you, you know, save and um, uh, store your your car details on your phone. Something very simple, but it's had a has it's had a, an effect on the uplift over a certain period of time mm -hmm. um, in our product performance. Things like that. Um, basically, um, will will not come in a single form. They won't, there won't be a single <laughs> metric that you can use. You really do have to kind of aggregate and consolidate all the information to basically, uh, is this helping me or is this hurting me? Anything mm -hmm. more than that is probably a little bit too complex of analysis. Very interesting. Uh, do you have any formats in which you do that kind of analysis? Like, is it just coming uh, at you ad hoc or do you dedicate, I don't know, an hour every week to sit down and go through all the reports? Like, What's the process in which you collect this information? Um, the, the simple answer is um, in the, you know, let's say you start a new job. The, the first three, six months, you'll, have, you'll spend a lot of time, a lot more of your day-to-day -day mm -hmm. ramping, ramping up. Um, I will typically focus um, more effort versus less um, around where we have performance reviews. 
-hmm. So, um, you know, at Google, we do quarterly performance reviews. So we will look back, we'll do a look back of what happened at last quarter, and then we'll do a look ahead of, you know, do we need to make some changes, pivots? And so as part of that kind of review process, I try to go through, a, a, you know, a additional time of like what's happening in the market. Um, do I see something changing? Um, what I will say is if you spend a lot of time on this, again, this, you know, I, I use the investing analogy. If you sat every day and you tried to understand what was happening and, mm -hmm. you know, is the market going to go up or down? There's way too many sources and there's way too much conflicting information. <laughs> but if you look at the data over a longer time period, it's easier to tease out the market trends. And so I, I, I would say in a similar context of consumer apps or, you know, user behaviors, you'll be able to see the user behavior over a longer period of time. Interesting. So essentially, uh, I would guess then for a person working on a strategy, uh, they would have a benefit if they worked in one industry for some time. So essentially, they accumulate they accumulated some industry knowledge. Essentially, uh, uh, pieces of it. I don't I don't know if you have to be explicitly an expert. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, um, you know, I, one of the kind of areas where we we like to hire from is consulting companies, mm -hmm. um, not because you know they. Are, you know they know strategy approaches the best but they they use a kind of objective process and and they you know they're not experts in financial services um you know they're more it's more about the process that they employ um so i wouldn't say in financial service you have to have been in the industry for 10 years it's more about can i can i use the objective process to get to mm -hmm. that that viewpoint about the future Mm -hmm. Yeah. So essentially, the uh, the analytic skills uh, to you know uh, to analyze the information rather than accessing the knowledge makes sense. Uh, I actually wanted to ask you. Sorry. No, I, I and and I get I just to pose on that because it might I might not have been one hundred percent clear. Um, you know, if you if you come at it from a. a objective based process and i know i keep hitting this concept um you know it while it may take you longer if you're not an industry expert you you still can start to form a view fairly quickly if you're using some you know fairly you know fairly standard concept of you know what's the big user opportunity what's the company mission mm -hmm. as long as you can string together that sentence of you know i think i you know i can target this big of a user base, 5 million customers with a payments app because, you know, there are a set of um, uh, remittance flow that's currently untapped because um, the existing uh, competitors are too big and they're not able to serve this customer base. Mm -hmm. That's all you have to get to, to basically have a high level strategy. Um, and so you can have loads and loads of experience and say, oh, I know how, you know, everything works in financial services. Um, but if you, but sometimes what happens is you end up coming at it from an opinion. I've been in it for 20 years and I've seen mm -hmm. this and this. Well, if you get stuck in that, that I have 20 years of experience, you may fall back into the crux of, of, of being mm -hmm. very subjective in your opinion. Awesome. That's a great point. And I really love this example. Uh, I think when you are quite flexible in your thinking and you come at it from like a new perspective, you might bring some new angles, which might be very beneficial. Uh, I'm actually interested to ask about your current day to day. Like what is the head of strategy? What's, what does it mean in terms of responsibilities? Yeah, so I, I basically, it, at least on the strategy side, um, I cover kind of three areas. One is uh, kind of product strategy for the region. Um, and so that's kind of basically looking at, um, you know, specific uh, features or localization efforts for product that need to happen to basically improve product market fit. So it's, it's basically an internal to internal look of, do we have the right products 
for the markets and user bases that we're targeting. Mm -hmm. The second is basically a flip of that where I cover go to market. So I have an existing product suite. I want to expand in terms of the, the user bases. So that may be market entry. How do I prioritize specific markets? Um, that may also be a discussion about, um, you know, we've been targeting Gen Z. Um, how do we deepen penetration into other um, socioeconomic or demographic groups? Um, and so basically looking at how we would raise awareness with a new user group and then basically try to get them into user funnel. So that's the second piece. The third um, is around, you know, a lot of internal chief of staff and annual planning. So I basically sit right in the middle um, and help to run a process for doing annual review, then doing a look ahead um, and doing a lot of kind of what do we need? So what resources and funding do we need to be able to support our uh, growth plans? Mm -hmm. I think that covers quite a lot of areas. Uh, what who do you feel is best positioned to take on this role in a small company? So if you think about like an early stage startup, uh, who would be best positioned to cover uh, strategy, essentially to be responsible for creating a strategy? Well, I, I, I would say a lot of people have to have an input into it. Mm. You know, especially in a small startup, you know, I don't believe that you're going to rely on that one individual to define the future success of the company. There's going to be a lot of different inputs into that. What I would say is, you know, um, if you're a type of person that wants to really dig into the why, um, and so, you know, this may be someone who sits in product, this may be someone who sits in maybe a bit of marketing, um, or it could be someone who sits in, you know, there's a number of gr called growth roles. Um, it's going to be someone who, uh, as I said, really can, can step back and say, explain to me why you think that that could, that could work. What's mm -hmm. the logic? Where's the data? Show me the data. You know, there, I probably ask 10 times a day, where is the data that, <laughs> that supports your hypotheses? Explain to me why you think that. And so if you don't have someone that, that you've hired into that strategy role, it really does need to be someone who can who can basically separate themselves from their own opinion and be able to kind of follow the process and, and basically reach the conclusion that's based on the data that's available. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. I can see uh, amazing questions already. So guys, if you do have any questions, please share them. And I actually will ask one last question from my side. So we talked about strategy and um, you mentioned this like five year timeline. Uh, I actually hear a lot about early stage founders that they actually don't think about such a long term perspective. They're like, oh, my company might not exist in the next like Correct. year or two. Uh, and I just need to focus and execute. How yes. would you sell strategy to them? Yeah, so I, I honestly, I was I was in some conversations recently and I, and I got a very similar piece of feedback like and and basically i think the logic goes to to your point you know my company may not be around in three years or the market may have completely shifted by the time i design build and launch a product so i just need to be more nimble than my competitors to be successful um what i'd say in response is well you may not need that kind of you know, that full V mm -hmm. that I described. Um, I mean, I think clearly at a minimum, you should have kind of that standard pitch pack. You, 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 you need to be able to articulate the, why are you here? You know, kind of why you exist and what do you think it is that you're going to be able to provide that doesn't exist in the market, whether that's something that you're going to provide better to that you're against your competitors or you're going to target a user base with a new product that that hasn't um, been served before. That that level, and again, as many numbers as you can kind of bake into that, mm -hmm. the better. Um, you know, there's 10 million customers that, or actually a, a great one. You know, what's the number of new, um, you know, 
Gen Z that are going to be opening bank accounts? This is kind of a typical fintech question in the next mm -hmm. five years. Um, you know, how do we make sure that we capture the highest percentage? There's always this kind of, you know, new customer opportunity in, in that base. You should be able to spout those numbers. You should be able to say, well, I think out of the, you know, in the UK, there's going to be a, a million new potential retail banking customers because they're going to turn 18 or 16, whatever number you want to use. I think I can target 5%, 10%. All of that very, very, very high level math is critical to move away from a, I'm targeting, you know, opening retail banking accounts because, you know, there are people who always need a bank account. <laughs> really need to push towards that data driven process that um, basically allows you to uh, test your hypotheses down the line. Mm -hmm. Nice. That resonates a lot. Uh, and I feel like being hypothesis driven allows you to learn quicker because essentially then you have something to, you know, to validate or not. And then you yeah. get, I think you get a much crisper insights. Absolutely. Nice. So I think we have a lot of questions. So uh, let's see if we can go through all of them. So the first one is from uh, Matea. Uh, so he's asking, what tools do you use to track the milestones and KPIs of your strategies? Tools. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, mm -hmm. You would think at Google we'd have like all these really fancy data tools. Um, <laughs> we do have we do have one, but um, realistically, it's a lot of spreadsheets and docs. Honestly, <laughs> if you're like very tactical, all of the uh, you know all the strategy work that I do is written down in a doc. I might create a very light presentation. Um, and all the analysis, um, because a lot of this is not intended to be permanent. Um, we we just leverage Excel, um, you know. And mm -hmm. I, I think there's a you know key point here is there's no permanence to your strategy. This needs to be uh, something that someone can go into a doc in in six weeks or three months and go, hey, we need to adjust. We need to change this live. Um, and so, you know, from a from a, a KPI perspective, you know, we'll use various sources, as I said, data, you know, performance from the product. So we have a number of tools that, you know, are able to elevate and bubble that up for us dynamically. Uh, those are, I'll be quite honest, homegrown and, and specific to Google. So it's not terribly helpful for the mass audience. <laughs> um, but um, it, it, you know, I, I literally have done a lot of market research um, over time. And I I literally will pick re various reports from external sources and I'll just copy paste. I mean, it, and it's mind numbing, but <laughs> the goal is to start to aggregate and consolidate some of that view into something that's very simple and easy to manipulate. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Now, I think, I think that resonates a lot and uh... Essentially, having a strong framework tops any tools you could find. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Uh, I think a really, really interesting question from Tabret. Uh, so sometimes the strategy changes, which obviously frustrates the team uh, that has been working on it for a long period of time. How can you handle that? Yeah. So uh, you know, I, I work at Google, so you can imagine that um, <laughs> as an external uh, individual, privacy strategy changes quite 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 regularly it's a very ever-changing concept of you know we want to go big in the space and no we don't want to do that and demise a bunch of products and we start over um some of that is culture so the simple answer is at google it's well known that um you know we may test something we may we even may get a fairly good response user response and we may still de demise it. So hmm. one of the things that you see a lot um, from a culture perspective, fungibility, when we start to design and build, we, uh, from both a product perspective as well as from a individual skill set and career perspective, fungibility is very, very key. You know, it's a very common, um, you know, uh, hiring practice at Google, you don't hire for the role. 
because the role may not exist. You hire for the company. Uh, and there's a definitely a, a, you lean towards hiring for the company. So, you know, in, you know, to your question, you know, um, when you start to demise a product at Google, you will sit down and say how much, you know, one, you never throw anything away, but you might say, well, we're going to pivot. And as part of the pivot, we're going to be able to reuse 30% of what we've already designed or built. So there's a lot of re reuse, reuse code, reuse product research, market research all the time. Everything wherever we can gets gets reused. Um, and, you know, as, you know, said the culture, if you have a culture of, hey, we may have to pivot and it becomes the individual feels less like I've been grinding through this and this is my entire existence. And it's more about, well, I just want to be successful in this company serving a set of customers. You know, you reframe that that kind of culture statement then the the changes that may be required in strategy become a bit easier because they go well you know we tried the assumptions changed or our hypotheses were proven wrong we need to pivot awesome now i love i love this advice about framing it as an experiment and as an attempt to solve a problem and essentially focusing people on the problem rather than on the solution which uh, yeah i think makes a lot of sense um, a question from Mikhail. Uh, could you give an example when during the inflection point uh, in this VE framework, uh, you actually had to change your strategy significantly? Uh, yeah, so uh, there's probably a lot of public examples. So um, <laughs> uh, I'll give you two. One that didn't launch and one that launched. So one in, one in my region. So, um, you know, let's say if there's any fintech people out there, you probably have, uh, you were aware of this whole super app concept that was bubbling around about, you know, five, seven years ago. And obviously Google uh, was kind of deep into that as well. You know, you build payments app, then you have, you know, a number of added services on top of that, ads, banking products, whatever. Um, we were intending to launch that product in Europe several years ago. Um, and we were ramping up and this is kind of down deep. We were deep, deep in the V. We were about to hit the pilot and start to test with users. And we reached a point where uh, it was somewhat driven by leadership change, but it was also driven by people waking up and looking around at other markets at the data that was coming back because we had recently launched in the US and the uplift in mature markets was very poor. Um, and so there was a review done, you know, and we do them, you know, every quarter and this one was a larger annual review. And we realized our assumptions that we had, a, we had basically produced from, we had, a, you know, started this whole super app in, um, Asia and in India, and we had huge uplift, but then when we applied it to Western markets, we didn't see the same. So assumptions were wrong. And at that point. No kidding, we had already signed about, you know, 80 different contracts with partners. So all the partners were gearing up and we basically just called them and say, hey, we decided internally we're not going to do this anymore. <laughs> so that, so oh, that wow. was an EMEA one. Um, yeah. What happened next? <laughs> and and so, we, you know, you, you do a lot of, you know, it's a big apology tour. You know, it's a big, big apology tour and your partners will be upset with you for a while. So obviously you don't want to do that very often, especially if you're, you know, you know, you're in a partner ecosystem. Um, but basically what we what we came to partners with was and I think this is a very true statement. We came to a conclusion that launching this product was not going to provide the value to Google, to the users or to you, the partners that we had thought. Mm -hmm. So, so continuing forward in this journey was not going to be valuable. And that's, and that while there was a fair amount of, of wasted effort, mm -hmm. um, you know, we obviously learned a lot. We learned a lot through the process of, of going through the launch plans. Um, but it, it was, it was, it's very, it can be very painful. I mean, it, I mean, you know, we had to drag a lot of VPs out of their beds, so to speak, and <laughs> have them sit with partners for a long mm. time. And, and it frustrated a lot of people. Oh, 
Yeah, I can imagine. But I think it's important that we did not, uh, you know, focus on the sunk cost fallacy and just uh, make a made a decision which was right for the users and for the company in the long run. So thanks for sharing the example. Yep. You mentioned you had the second one. Oh yeah. So in in the uh, in the U.S. actually. Um, we uh, had launched a uh, product around um, basically offers and coupons. Um, and so this is actually a similar product that I talk about that we um, had actually launched in the US and we had, mm -hmm. we had it live and we were basically kind of post pilot, I would say MVP plus plus. So we had started to develop some additional features. And basically the, the user uplift was not what we were hoping for and and another thing that became quite apparent um, was the scalability of the product was not what we were hoping to be so basically we we were you know we were looking at what it was going to require to start to scale this up within the market you know with all the coupons and there's a whole you know coupon offer platform and it was it was not sustainable mm. um and so we looked at, you know, user performance. We looked at the response, you know, the ability to scale this up cost wise, you know, fixed versus variable. And so we, we, we are demising it. It's, it's, it, it's in the process of, and we've let users know that, that you know, in the next six months or so, we're going to be demising that product. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was something that's already live in the market. There were some, kind of super users that really liked it. Um, but, you know, in the Google fashion, you test. We saw that it was something that had value, but to a, a more limited audience. And so we're in the process of optimizing that product. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing those examples. Uh, really appreciate it. I think that makes uh, the concept really come to life. I <laughs> uh, question from Arthur. Uh, how does your strategy-oriented mind affect your personal life? So when it comes to your career or personal life decisions, uh, do you apply any of the strategic frameworks you use at work? Uh, I'll <laughs> say this. Uh, I have a very common refrain from my friends and family, um, although my, I come from fairly analytical families, but I'm an overthinker. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, some, it's a very common piece of feedback that I get because I try to think about all the different uh, variables and things and, and be able to kind of understand the logic. Some of that's because I'm an engineer, but, you know, also spend a lot of time in, in strategy. So it does affect it become if, if you have this as a kind of a core part of personality, people, people will typically pick up on that and they'll, um, they'll typically say, hey, like, just, you know, you don't need to think so much. Um, <laughs> but it's just it's just kind of part of who I am. <laughs> nice. Uh, what are the pitfalls that you observe when people are trying to create the strategy? Oh, sorry. Well, which work? See that? Uh, that's actually on a different uh, screen. Oh, okay. Can you, can you, can yeah. you just repeat the question? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, what are the pitfalls you most commonly observe uh, when people are trying to create a strategy? Um, I know I, I, I'll, I'll say the one that I, I will always, you know, want to hit, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you another. It, honestly, moving from subjective to objective sounds very simple. If you've worked in an industry for five years, you're going to have an opinion. You're mm -hmm. going to have a view. You have to basically close that part of your brain off when you build uh, the strategy. Um, the other kind of pitfall um, is you build the, the strategy and then you you lock it away. You say mm -hmm. we, you know, many times many organizations that go to a, a retreat, offsite retreat, sit down, talk about team mission or product mission or company mission, whatever. And everyone inputs. You have this big jam session. Everybody's you know, goes out to dinner, drinks, whatever, afterwards, they write it down. At the end of the week, they leave 
and they completely forget. <laughs> gone. It's gone. Um, and so you, if you can really, you know, and, and not to push Google products, but I used to be a Microsoft person, by the way, in terms of like we're now using Google Docs, the ability to create and comment and share is quite critical when you're building strategy. Mm. Allow people to challenge, allow people to comment, people across the organization, allow, and then and then keep it open. You know, don't lock it down when you start to build. Just iterate, iterate off the existing. Um, so make it a part of the process mm. uh, of of designing and building the product, not just an artifact that gets stuck in a shared drive. Uh, that's that's probably a, a big pitfall that I that I, I have you know having worked in a more traditional organization like HSBC. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that also uh, kind of relates to your first point uh, because I feel like uh, opening it up to more opinions allows you to move from subjective to objective because essentially yeah. you're taking in more uh, different perspectives and more data points, uh, which allows right. to kind of. Uh, removes the bias that you might apply when you're just doing this yourself. Uh, and just just to double tap on that, just for thirty seconds, um, I, I recognize, especially if you're a founder, you don't want to spend a lot of time in strategy. <laughs> you don't want to. But in the time that you do, be willing to critique, provide feedback, be be very invested in basically going through the, you know, the rigorous process. Um, because if you, if you spend a bit more time and it's not just, Hey, I found this number and it, and this user opportunity looks massive, you know, hockey stick to the moon, dig deeper. If, if you can allow, and then, you know, send it out to your company or to your team for review for a couple of weeks. And then sit down and go through all the comments, and 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 if you have time, work through that. That that additional iterative thought thinking will will pay dividends down the line. One obviously because you have a better strategy, but you also have a team that understands and is more involved. You know, is basically aligned to it. So you say, hey, you know, because if someone, everyone walks away. And at least says, I may not agree with the strategy, but I understand it. Hmm. Then everyone's starting to move in the same direction. That is such an important point. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. So last question, just to you know, to uh, finalize our discussion here uh, from Matea on how you could continue developing your strategic thinking. Maybe you could share what you do to continue learning about strategy. I, I will say through through the number of years, I have read a number of, of interesting books, and I'm, I'm happy to, you know, provide them to you, Anna, when you post. Um, what I like to do, um, because it's kind of my my mentality model, um, is I, I, I do spend some of my personal time thinking about the markets, thinking about the broader macroeconomic things that are happening. Um, you don't have to do all of that to be successful, um, but at least being able to start to, um, you know, the, where I would start is start to challenge the the why, being able to articulate the why of the things that you're seeing around you, especially the, if you work in a big company, the big macroeconomic decisions, being able to understand that um, helps you to be able to start to connect the macro versus the micro. Um, and, you know, and yeah, can, you know, obviously you can read a lot of industry reports and various, you know, go to conferences and things like that, but, you know, at a certain point, be you know, you should be able to say, when I read this report or I read this statistic, you know, it either validates what I have read in other places or it, it shows something different. And then you go through a different exercise of does this change my opinion or, or my viewpoint? And so that kind of mental model is very critical to strategic thinking.
Um, and so I think any, any, everybody in every position can do that. I don't think that, you know, is explicit to the strategy folks. <laughs> no, I think it's a, it's a really useful advice to anyone who is interested in becoming more strategic. Yeah, Absolutely. I think we are at time. So thank you so much for sharing so many insights and practical examples and also the framework, uh, which I hope uh, many readers will start uh, using from now on. So thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you folks as well for spending an hour with us. Uh, John is a mentor on Meander, so you can continue a conversation about strategy, about building flywheels, finding your super users uh, anytime uh, by going to Meander and finding his profile, and we'll share it under post as well. Thank you so much. Uh, it's Thank been you. an amazing evening, and hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining.